Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, I'm so thankful I've been here for this service uh, to have the involvement uh, of our children leading us and participating with us in worship. It's been great having both the Sanctuary Choir and the Choristers Choir. Now, you can tell the difference. The Sanctuary Choir has robes. So that's, that's how you could tell, just to let them know. Perhaps also uh, you didn't notice that we had someone new also very much involved in leading us and giving our praise to God, and that's uh, our organist, uh, Grace Chung. Uh, Grace, welcome to Lake Avenue Church. Uh, I think she's just moved to Pasadena, and it's the first time she's been here. So I, I hope you'll enjoy the, the fellowship and worship of our, of our people who are here. I'm also glad to be here. This last week I had one of the most memorable uh, evenings of my life. Uh, at the very last minute, uh, many of the Christian students at Princeton University um, had come together. There are four campus ministries at Princeton who have never done anything together. And the students had come to this conviction that they needed to reflect the unity of God's family to the campus. They had read Jesus' prayer that we will be one so that the world may see it and believe. And they said, we, and many of the campus leaders, the, 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 people, the um, paid staff, didn't really want to do this. But finally the students just a week and a half before said, we're going to do it anyway. And they gave me a call. I, I've been there and spoken quite often, and they always know I talk about this and long for that to happen here, that will reflect to Pasadena and to Southern California, the oneness of the family of God through faith in Christ. So uh, I got there this last week, and on Friday night, it was electric. Uh, the responsiveness of the students and their readiness to hear the Word of God. It was almost like preaching in some of the... Um, um, South Chicago black churches that I used to get to go to helping me out and, and just you could tell ready to hear whatever God had to say and I just want you to know that God's work is still alive even on the Ivy League campuses and I think a great work of God's Spirit is going to happen and partly it's because of what we're going to be thinking about today because we have come in many ways it's a somber morning because as you look at the elements all around us here we uh, come today to remember the death, the gruesome death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I want to point out this, that many other religious people around the world who have other faiths would never do such a thing. Did you know that? Um, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, died at the age of 80. Even though he'd had a, a rather hard life, at the end of his life, he died, and, and history says, in peaceful serenity, surrounded by a whole host of devotees, people who had embraced his philosophy and were committed to furthering it. Uh, Confucius died at the age of 72. And if you know history, you know that he suffered many, many struggles with many, many groups of people. But by the end, he returned to his home city of Lu, having triumphed over all of his opponents and having successfully organized a great group of followers who were committed and promised him that they would further his teaching. And Muhammad died at the age of 62. He too had had many struggles in his, in his earlier life, but at the end he, 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 he uh, ended in peace because he became the political ruler of a united Arabia. And if you know anything about him, he died appropriately enough at his harem in Mecca in the arms of his favorite wife. Now why do I start in a, in a church like ours? 
my message in this way. It's partly because I keep hearing that the origin of all world religions is the same. It's, it's almost always said it started by a founder with a great, great personality, a person who, who discovers uh, some great moral or spiritual truth, that that person dedicates his life to it, at first has struggles, but finally succeeds in gaining followers and then changing his own society, and then eventually dies with the future of the religion virtually guaranteed. And I wanted to show you this, that at least as far as Buddhism and Confucianism and Islam is concerned, there's an obvious degree of truth in that. Do you see it? Because all of them were founded by men who, I used to say, died in their ripe old age. It doesn't sound as old to me as it, as it used to sound, just, just, just to let you know. And uh, even though they all had had struggles, they had come to their teaching, and eventually it had vast acclaim among their own countries and their people, and they died with the movement of their teaching virtually promised in, in human eyes. In fact, in the whole spectrum of what people call world religions, as we gather here, it is only the Christian faith that is different. Because Jesus died probably at the age of 33. He had taught for the most three years. And when he died, his own countrymen had ostracized him. His own followers first betrayed him and then denied him. His opponents mocked him and spat upon him. Everybody at the end forsook him. Even he felt his heavenly father. And finally, as we know, and what we're going to be remembering, he suffered one of the most atrocious, ignominious, agonizing forms of public execution that our human imagination has ever devised. When we remember the death of Jesus, we remember that Jesus died prematurely, tragically, violently, and lonely on a Roman cross. The words of the prophet Isaiah, let me show them to you. The one we follow was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we viewed him in low esteem. He was oppressed and afflicted Yet he did not open his mouth. At the end, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Isaiah 53. Now, if you'd never heard that before, and then you saw here, so many miles away from where it happened, 2,000 years from when it happened, you say, here we are gathering and remembering someone who lived and died like that. The question would be, how could that possibly be the case? And here we are gathering as followers of Jesus are all over the world. And we're not trying to hush up the humiliation of that kind of a death. Far from it. Have you noticed that we've been singing songs about it? We, we've been glorying in it. I'm going to be preaching about it. In fact, we gather here because we know that there would be no gathering if he had not died in this way. There would be no Christian faith at all. You remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23? What we do, he says, is preach Christ crucified. Then he says, I know that's a scandal to my own Jewish people. And it may be utter foolishness to non-Jewish people. But to us, it is the very power of God. Now what on earth is that all about? We preach a gruesome crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. 
Well, the way we've been trying to put it together to say, what do we believe about the work of Jesus? We put it this way. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Do you believe that? His atoning death, making us one with God, and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for our salvation. So summarizing it, we're saying this good news that comes from God, God's gospel, is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be thinking about that. And we're going to be focusing on the particular work of Christ that we emphasized in this article, namely his death. And I'm going to be asking one question, but in a couple of ways. And the question is why? I I just want you to know if you've come this morning and if you're visiting with us, there is no question in all the history of people following Jesus that is more central to a gathering like this than this question. Why did Jesus die? And I'm going to be asking it in two ways and then we're going to be remembering it. Number one, why? What was the motive behind his death? What was in his heart as he died? And then number two, why? What was the purpose of this death? What did Jesus hope to accomplish? As he would repeatedly say, I have come specifically for this reason. And then at the end gave his life. And and to guide us, I thought the very best thing we could do is to turn to the words of Jesus about it. Uh, that Stephanie read for us so well in John chapter 10. If you have a Bible, turn there. Jesus' own teaching about his upcoming death, and I think you'll find that it is deeply moving. So first, what was the motive behind the death of Jesus? What was in his heart? And, And you know what? Our brothers and sisters around the world and those who've gone on before us have always given a very simple and yet profound answer. And it is this, that Jesus died on the cross Because he loves us. He loves you and he loves me. And if you are here for that one message I did on the human condition, remember I tried to make the point, we're messed up. He knows it. But he died because he loves us. Now where do I see this in what Jesus said in John chapter 10 where he talked about himself being the good shepherd? I want you to notice first one particular word that is loving character is demonstrated by his use of the word good. Look at verse 11. I am, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if you miss it, brings it back again in verse 14. I'm the good shepherd and I know my sheep and they know me. All right. You know that there are many ways that we can use that word good, don't you? Uh, We can talk about a good car if it runs. If it runs. And mine does because I got it from a Lake Avenue church person. So just let you know. The other way we can use good, we can look around and say that's a good person. And very often we mean by that somebody who's morally upright, you know, honest. Now the word that Jesus uses, I'm the good shepherd. It was not usually used for either one of those. Simply being efficient. I'm the efficient shepherd. I'll get the job done. Or or honest, morally upright, I'll be sure to put in a full day's work for a full day's pay. (laughs) The word that he uses, and it's translated in the Greek, kalos, is almost always used for the quality of a person that is very attractive and that's beautiful. 
You just think about it. Do you know good people like that that you just, you love to be with? You long to be with? The, the kind of people that, that would so often refer to would be a, a person characterized by, by kindness, uh, empathy. Do you, do you know that word? The one who just doesn't always think about himself or herself, they're able to put themselves into your shoes uh, by a graciousness. Somebody that you know would never, never intentionally do you any harm. And actually, in the day of Jesus, it would often be used for uh, the kind of person that simple animals, like sheep, using that metaphor, like sheep would be drawn to. Just they, they would intuit somehow that this person would never hurt me, will try to take care of me. And that is what Jesus is like. And that's why I think the children, when they simply hear the stories of Jesus, are so drawn to Jesus. They find him to be good, just so beautiful. You know, I'm a grandfather now, so I've got to occasionally tell a grandfather's story, don't I? Well, I'm going to. Uh, I have two grandchildren, uh, Riley and, and uh, Noel, and they, they both love books and love stories and always want to be read to, but especially Riley, but both, especially love the Bible. They have a children's Bible, and the stories in the Bible they love the most are the stories of Jesus. So Riley, before going to bed, always wants to have a story and, and always wants to have it to be ended with a story about Jesus. She just loves Jesus. It's just what I, I'm talking about here. Well, the story is this. Uh, parents you know how, and children, you know how this is too. Um, parents, if, if our children, you haven't seen them for a while and you haven't heard anything for a while, we usually become anxious. You can almost hear Chris say to me, Greg, go find out what the kids are doing and make them stop. What are, you know, we just think they have to do something wrong. So Heather, our daughter, had realized that she hadn't heard or seen anything of Riley for a good while. She, she yells, Riley, what are you doing? And she was back in her room and she says, Mom, I'm back here looking for Jesus. Anyway, I like this story. <laughs> I'll tell you others at some time. But I think it really fits here. There's something about Jesus when we read the way he, he dealt with people, the way he saw people, the way he welcomed people, cared about people. He, he, was, he was tough when he had to be. But when people were hurting, they would find he would never do me harm. And it's why, if we think about how do we communicate the faith that is so dear to us, that almost always people have been drawn to the Christian faith, not by apologetic arguments, though we need that. Not We need that to defend our faith. The Bible tells us that too. Not so much by ad campaigns, though sometimes we need to make that known too, what, what uh, the message is. But almost always people are drawn to Jesus when they see his goodness. Uh, reading the stories or seeing it in our lives. And Jesus' goodness, I just want to say today, is nowhere more fully on display than in his death. He is saying that if I have to die to prove my love for my flock, for my sheep, I am ready to do it. He only means what is good for us. And he says there will be other things that come into this world, hirelings, he called them, who will try to promise that they are trustworthy and they will bring some goodness to you, but they usually aren't to be trusted. In, in his day, there were other so-called messiahs who said, come and give to our ministry and follow us, but he says they won't carry through. At the end of the day, you'll find they're just doing it for themselves, and the same thing is true in our day too, isn't it? 
That's just what I so much pray that in coming to the church, it's not just in building a big building or, or building my ministry. We have to come to Jesus. And it's Jesus who is the good shepherd. And there are so many things, things in our world that promises so much. And here in the United States, almost every ad that you ever have is trying to promise you, I will bring you goodness to your life. I couldn't believe it. I saw in a newspaper an advertisement for toilet paper. And as I looked through it with jewels around it and all different, it's promising that if you'll use this, life will be good. <laughs> it's just insanity, isn't it? And so there's so many things that just seem like, buy this, do that, and your life will be so much better. Trust me in this and don't carry through. And sometimes those things, whether it's alcohol or, or drugs or just pleasure, will end up trapping us. They kill and steal and destroy. But Jesus says, I will not do that. John 10.10, you know it's one of my favorite verses. I have not come to kill and steal and destroy. I have come so that you may live that you may have life to the full. John, the apostle, would write about it in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Why did He die? He loved us. Because He means the best for us. And the second part of how we see that He loves us his love is shown because his death wasn't haphazard or random. It wasn't just because, you know, he had to because everybody else had control. It was a planned death. Look at verse 18 with me. Look at verse 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he tells us, you need to know this. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. I was trying to think, now how do I communicate this? And I remembered a story that I read in the commentary by William Barclay about a, a soldier in World War I who had intentionally volunteered to go to the front of the battle knowing that there was danger there. And there was. And when the bomb dropped, he was eventually taken to the, uh, to the medic's uh, uh, tent. And the medic came in and said, I'm sorry, soldier, uh, you've lost your arm. And the man quickly said to him, No, doc, I didn't lose my arm. I gave it. You see, see the, the difference? He knew what he was doing. And his love of country and his love of freedom brought him to the point that he was willing to give his arm. Now Jesus here is saying something like that, but it's much, much stronger. He's not just saying that he came into this world willing to die if he has to, you know, like a soldier going into battle. He says he's come into this world knowing that his death would be necessary if we would receive what we need as his sheep. And even though he knew that he had to come to die, and he said it over and over again, I must die. He'd tell his disciples, I have come for this reason. It is going to happen. He was willing to do it, motivated by his love. I have come to die. It is necessary. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. The reason for this planned death is to bring sheep into his sheepfold, into a place of safety. And he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And it, it's what it's like is it's just as I know my father and my father knows me. I know my sheep, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Now, you've heard those words, haven't you? They, they are such remarkable, 
and moving words that I do not want us today to come to this service and miss them. Jesus on the other side of the cross, that awful, gruesome cross, with these eyes that are able to penetrate throughout the world and into history, was able to see followers on the other side of the cross, a group that he says in a very special way are his. My sheep. Do you see that? Again and again. My sheep. And in verse 16, he'll, he'll even add it. There are some who are not of this particular uh, fold. He's talking there about non-Jewish people. There are people all over the world who really belong to me. And I must lay my life down for the sheep. You've got to think about it. Jesus was envisioning what he'd already talked about. This good news of hope and forgiveness and new life for people is going to reach to all people before I finish the work. And there will be people of every tribe and language and nation in my family before I finish my work. I have sheep everywhere in this world who belong to me and I'm dying for them. I'm dying for my sheep. As I thought about it, I thought, he can even see a gathering in this huge uh, worship center in Southern California in 2011. And he looks at us and he says, there are people there that I know and I love them. I love them. So much that I'll die for them. Uh, you know, we so often talk about the fact that Jesus died for the world. And that is true. Whosoever will may come. But here I want you to know that this family that Jesus died to bring into being was not a sort of faceless multitude to him. You know, we have a fairly large church with a, um, a lot of services. And it's hard for us to know one another at all. Do you ever come across somebody, I do, you can imagine, somebody in town who's, who says, oh, I saw you at church, but you see me all the time. I know you have that big screen up there. Uh, but we hard to get, it's hard for us to get to know one another, right? And so is it that way with Jesus, with people from all over the world? No, he says, you are not faceless to me. I know you, I know your name, and I love you. And especially this, I know your human condition. <laughs> I know where you've fallen short. Remember I said all of us. None of us is right with God. I know that, he says. But I love you. Uh, I was reading a, an article again when I was flying uh, to New Jersey. And it says that in our world, and, and doctors, you know this, that there is a shortage of vital organs in our world for medical healing. I'll just show you how my brain works. I said, I wonder if that's true. Isn't it that there are probably, for most organs, plenty of organs, but the problem is that most of them are still inside of those of us using them, isn't it? <laughs> you see, I shouldn't think that way. But most of us could donate an organ, a kidney, for example, but most of us don't because we feel it's too risky. There's only so much we should do, isn't there? Uh, and the giving of our life, especially for somebody who's walked away from us, now that's something that's too much, too much of a sacrifice. Dying, of course, goes beyond the limits. I just want you to know, why did Jesus die? While we were yet sinners, he was ready to die for us. Why? Because he loves us. He loves you. He knows you. He knows what you've done this week. He knows what you did this morning. And yet, as you come here, he turns to you. I want you to hear this. It says, I know your name and I love you.
And we ask how much? He loved us to death. He loved us to death. Second question. What was the purpose of this dying then? And there's one more phrase I just want you to focus on. It's found in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life in this phrase, for the sheep. For the sheep. And it's found again there in verse 15. I lay down my life. You see it? For the sheep. So somehow he had to die for us. What does that mean? I don't, I'll just bring you in. The, theologians really debate about this. Always have and really do now. Because the thing that I believe is that Jesus had to die in my place. I, I needed my sins forgiven or I couldn't be in the presence of a holy God. So I needed the sinless one to bear my sins upon himself, to be my substitute. But many theologians hate that notion. Uh, and so right now they say, well, why don't you just leave it, Pastor, at saying, well, he died for the sheep just because he loved you as an example of how great his love is. And I'll tell you, somebody dying for you, that is an example of love. Don't you agree? So that's a part of it. Don't miss that. Others have said, okay, it's more than that. It's also because sin is so serious to God that he's willing to come and die because of sin to demonstrate the seriousness of sin. And that's true too, isn't it? That's true too. A third will say, well, no, it's really the empathy of God. He, he wanted to enter into this world even to experience death, but then to show us that he can defeat it. And so the resurrection after a death is a demonstration to the entire cosmos of the victorious Christ over every enemy we could possibly face. And I'll tell you, that's true too. But I tell you, none of those, in my estimation, is at the heart of the purpose of Jesus' death. And why? Because I don't know that if dying is the best example simply of, of love in and of itself or of how serious it is. I was trying to think, how on earth do I illustrate this? I was, Who will I use as an example? Well, I talked to the Choi's and to the Lewis's at the beginning when I walked in. Um, the Choi's, Sung and Esther, and John and Deanne Lewis have been married, one of them 24 years, and the other 26 years. Yes, Esther and Deanne were two when they got married, just in case you, you, you wonder. Now, having been married that long, can you imagine that Deanne and, and Esther, do you like being in this sermon? It's, it's always, you listen better, you listen better. Uh, Deanne and Esther could turn to John and Sung and say, you know, we've been married a long time, and you have told me that you love me, but sometimes I really wonder... Could, could you prove your love to us? And so John and Sung, they go climbing up to the very top of the spire of this cross that towers over the I-210. And they look down and they jump off of the cross. And as they are jumping off the cross to their death on the 210, they say, Deanne and Esther, we love you this much. Now, what would... What would uh, Deanne and Esther say about that. Wow, now that, that's the love we've been looking for. That's, that's the way we're supposed to love. You know what they would say? I think they would say, that's nuts. They would, they would say, what good did it do for them to jump to their death off the top of that spire? Wouldn't they say that? 
in the same way. What sense would it make if Jesus just died to say, this is how much I love you? This is how serious sin is. See, the only way it really shows love is if the one that we are loved is in danger. If death is in the equation. If I get in front of a bullet and take it for the person I love, that, that is love. And Jesus really is saying and turning to us and saying, the reason I'm willing to die for my sheep is that I know my sheep are in danger in and of ourselves. He knows that. You see, he uses the idea of a wolf, a wolf among the sheep. When, when the wolf is there, when, when the sheep know it, they become very, very nervous. But for those of us, we need to know that there is a wolf out there haunting each one of us. It is the wolf of death that comes to each one of us, which leads to us standing in front of a holy God. And our human condition, the fact that we've fallen short, has made it so that you and I are not ready to stand in front of a holy God and still be able to stand. The wages of sin is death. And when physical death comes, we have no hope of being able to stand in front of a holy God. Jesus knew this. You and I also intuitively know it. Sometimes we try to ignore it. In fact, it's amazing to me in American culture, it's really different in some others, that we don't even like to think about death or talk about death. You can go to a funeral here in the United States, and what people often talk about is, well, aren't those nice flowers? Or didn't the embalmer do a great job today? Instead of the real question, where is that person? What happens when this comes because it's coming to me? We know it. We know that there is a wolf there. And one of my responsibilities as pastor is, is to remind us of it and then to say there's somebody who can do something about our danger and he has. He loves us. Lived a sinless life. Was willing to bear punishment that sin requires because evil must be dealt with if we're going to have a moral universe. And declare though we are unjust, to say you are just, you are right before God. I think that the reason why people hate this message of Jesus substituting himself for us is that we are just not willing to own how serious our sin is. How many times I hear people say, why doesn't God just forgive us? That's, that's his job, isn't it? Why doesn't he just wave a magic wand and just say it's all forgiven? It's because God is holy. Now, for us, when we're not, you know how we are. We, um, we one day will take a little, put a little toe into some activity that we know is wrong and we'll feel bad about it. But the more we do it, we become callous to it. And so many times we can have a time in our lives, the longer we've lived, that we're engaging in things that years before we could never have imagined we would do. We become callous to sin. We try to pretend it's not serious. But God is holy. So sin is something that is very hard for God to forgive. I mean, it, how can somebody turn and say somebody who's unjust, who's not right, is just? Somebody who's done wrong is right. How, how can you do that? Tim Keller put it this way. We are more wicked than we ever dare imagine. I didn't get a single amen. <laughs> we are. We need help. And I want to declare to you, we are more loved than we ever dare to hope. And that brings us to the good news. 
as difficult as forgiving my sin is for a holy, perfect God, he has found a way to do it. One sinless one came into this world, lived the life that you and I know we should live and, and, and none of us are doing it. And then died the death that we deserve so that we don't have to. And says, if you will trust in me, what I have done can be applied to you. And one of the basic words for being a follower of Jesus in the Bible is, in Christ. I love it. In Christ. That's the way God sees us. What He did, God sees us through Him. God sees us through Him. So that we can be declared right. He has found a way to justify the unjust. To declare sinners right with Him. Jesus died for the sheep. To rescue us. Hallelujah. I I wanted to show you something. John Stott, who in his his later years has become a bit of a friend, wrote a great, great book called The Cross of Christ. And I thought this might be heavy, but I don't think so. I see some children here. Look at this. See if you can follow this. I think you can. Maybe your folks can too. He said, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. First commandment. While the essence of God's salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God, putting himself where only God deserves to be. God then sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives belonging to God alone. Then God accepts penalties belonging to man alone. He died for the sheep because we're in danger so that we might live. And only one has done this, the Lord Jesus. Today I want to make you sure, I want you all to make sure that your faith is in Him. That you say what has been said there is right. I don't understand all of this, but I look at my own life and I know I need to be made right. There are things that need to be forgiven. Give it to Him. Entrust your sin to Him and your life to Him and He will receive you. And you will know Him and He will know you just as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. What do we believe? Look at it again. We believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed His blood on the cross as the perfect all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death, making us right with God, and His then victorious resurrection constitute the only possible ground for our salvation because God's good news is accomplished through the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Lord. As I began, of which religious leader in the history of the world could we ever possibly say, that person loved me and gave his life for me? Of none. And that's why people don't celebrate their deaths as we celebrate it. Do you see that? We go so far as to say our lives are changed. We have hope and a new life because of him dying on the cross. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down His life for us. When we know it and believe it, 
we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's, that's why I preach to you about the cross. That's why we sing songs about the cross. Because you and I know, and we've owned it, and we're going to remember today that we are more wicked than we could ever dare imagine. And we know that God knows it too. And we know that we are more loved than we could ever dare to hope because we look at the love of God on the cross, the place where God's love and justice meet, and the place that provides for us hope and new life. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. To his glory. Amen.